What is up, Asymmetry? Got a good one for you. Got a good one for you right here. Aaron Kupferman, artist, visual artist, sculptor, photographer, fantastic creative mind, joined us on the podcast. We've been engaging with Aaron because he's been taking a really interesting material approach to the creation of the bonsai vessel, uh, utilizing concrete in ways that I haven't seen people apply this kind of refined sculptural quality to. And we wanted to get some perspective on Aaron's background, on his process, and on the information that he puts into these pieces. I think listening to this shed so much light on just how valuable his perspective is and how much it can contribute with these pieces to our interpretation of this art form and these miniaturized trees that we all find to be so inspiring. Anyways, uh, Aaron's work will be available on our web store, goods.bonesimerai.com after this. And Aaron, at the end of the podcast, lets you in on a little window to access his other artistic work and creative endeavors. So uh, follow it all the way through. Fascinating conversation, incredibly talented individual, and we're really honored to be engaging and collaborating with Aaron. Sit back and enjoy. What's up, Aaron? Hey, Ryan. Yeah, can you hear me? I can't. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you just beautifully. Looks like you're muted, maybe. Your Zoom is muted. Makes sense. It makes sense. Why would there my, we go? Why would yeah. my Why would my Zoom be unmuted? Right, <laughs> right. I mean, why use Zoom if uh, you know we we could just do sign language? Yeah, right? that's right. We could we could try to right. lip read across the the computer screen. How are you? Yeah, that makes sense. Great. How are you, man? I'm doing really, really well. I'm really, I'm excited to get to sit down and talk to you, man. It's, uh, it's been a yeah. a uh, relationship via images, and then getting to handle <laughs> your artistry, and uh, you know, putting a face to the name and uh, and a voice to the personality is is always really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame we can't like get together. Actually, you know. Right, right, right. Now you're you're down in Southern California. Is that where you're at? Yeah, yeah, in Culver City, right in the heart of it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Everything staying civil down there? Oh, yeah, as of now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> when the Lakers won, it got a little crazy, though, huh? Yeah, yeah, and I guess a couple of the uh, the riots went past about a mile away or so when uh, all the all the racial stuff was going down, so. Wow. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, my little area here it's pretty pretty chill so yeah yeah and and uh i i I, i'm not really sure like you have sent me um obviously your work in terms of the use of of concrete as a medium to create vessels to house trees which which obviously is sort of the nature of of yours and my engagement and we're really excited to bring those to the world because I think people are going to be really excited to see exactly um, what it is you've been doing and how beautiful it is. I was shocked and really um, amazed to get to handle them. But you've also been doing some pretty radical stuff with wood or just utilizing it in a very beautiful way to serve the same function and whatnot. Where do all these skills come from? Like, give me give me a little bit of context for Aaron's uh, life, if you could. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I honestly, the wood stuff sort of came first about four, four or so years ago. We when we bought this house, um, I started getting into doing a little bit of woodworking, do some projects around the house, like build some shelves or whatever, 
And I've always liked collecting old things. And I had some older hand tools. And I have a very small spot in the garage where I could do some woodworking. I, my first project was building a, a wood workbench. And, um, and I really didn't have any room for power tools. Plus, I don't like the, the tools screaming at you and ready to rip your fingers off. And I liked some of these vintage tools that I was gathering. And so I really got into doing the um, sort of uh, all joinery, no heart, like no screws, no nails, pure joinery, all the old traditional woodworking stuff, mm. dovetail joints and using a hand plane to square up the wood with the, you know, uh, like doing everything by hand. And, you know, it may take me one or a night to square up a board to just how I want it. But to me, it was all about the process. And it might take me a month to do the step stool that we have in the bat in the bathroom for the kids to wash their hands with. <laughs> but, you know, it was an enjoyable month going like after working all day on the computer, I could go into the garage at night and do stuff with my hands and do tactile, tangible things. Yeah. And I, 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 I took, I, I've been a photographer my whole life and I took my photography skills and applied that. And it's been fun because I, I sort of built up a decent little Instagram account with photography on my, my, my woodworking. And um, I think I'm up to like 16,000 followers or something. Cool. And yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And then and I, I've been going to the Huntington for like a decade. I've been a member of the Huntington for like a decade or so. And I've always enjoyed the the bonsai stuff there. And I think a combination of that, and I think I stumbled across a couple of YouTube videos, and I was like, you know, that like bonsai, that's pretty cool. Like I've always appreciated it, but like that's maybe that's something I could actually do. Mm. And I I I just took a deep dive into the YouTube verse of of bonsai, and um. I, I, I think I, I, I wasn't as much into some of the traditional stuff like the, the junipers. I, I actually didn't get a juniper at all until I think like a year or two in, but um, I really liked like uh, broadleaf evergreens, like, like uh, boxwood. Mm -hmm. And so my first tree was that, was that boxwood. And and I think just because I had the stuff at hand with the woodworking and I, I just liked the look of the boxwood with, with the, like a wood pot. Um, I went and I, I got some teak, which is really rot resistant, really good stuff for, you know, water contact outdoor. And um, I made this, made this pot and I put, used dovetail joinery, but I did it instead of 90 degrees, which most people do it. I splayed them out. And I did some curves in it to make it look really cool. And, um, and a lot of people liked it. And so I've done about four or five of those um, different designs, try different things, but it takes me forever to do them. Yeah. And, and, um, and I've even shown them around to some folks like um, last year at a uh, bonsai convention uh, out in Riverside in October. What was it called? But like I, I walked around with these pots out just i was curious to see what people thought of them and like one of the guys who's there selling pots older older guy like i don't know his name and i wouldn't want to say his name anyways but like he was he was like uh what are you doing wood pots that's like uh, you know 
grumble grumble like i uh, i don't even know what to, this doesn't compute like what and so um but also just thinking like it takes me so long to make these um i was talking with my uncle who makes um concrete sculptures uh uh solomon bassoff fiducci um fiducci sculptures he makes these beautiful whimsical giant animals or um like he made like a 20 like a 15 foot dinosaur wearing converse shoes for like the outside of a, a museum or like a he's done stuff for like kids hospitals like a, a centipede where every every foot is like wearing a different style shoe and all these beautiful whimsical things he does this out of concrete now let's talk and he's been doing bonsai for the last couple decades and i was talking to him and he said you know you could consider concrete as an option and just talk like it, it sparked all these ideas but I, I didn't want to do something where i was like hand like all of the stuff he does he really applies by hand gets the the concrete much more um viscous and and he shapes it all i i wasn't quite into that style and i think that the lines of like architectural stuff or or more um, I don't know. I, I had these designs that I was making out of wood, which is very linear uh, and and a lot of faces and edges that I was trying to 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 figure out how to do. It seemed like that would translate into concrete mm -hmm. as a as a cast mold. Um, cast, you know, concrete from a mold. And so I really started to take a dive into that with the help of my uncle and um and it just it you know i i went hard you know hardcore into it i mean concrete is, is such a cool material it has such a, a a deep history to it um it can be raw but it can be refined um you know th there's a lot to it and um yeah so i mean that's sort of how i got to doing this um making these spots yeah, and it's it, concrete is an interesting medium because I think we tend to take it for granted, and it almost feels like it almost feels like concrete as a medium in sculpture, art, and design is is almost a medium that people sort of scoff at at first, and then have exposure to a high degree of craft, artistry, and design sense, and then circle back to it as like this rediscovered element that has this malleability and flexibility to it. And I, it's such an interesting dichotomy of approaches in bonsai because the concrete pot as we know it in North American bonsai is a direct derivative of, of the internment camps in World War II where this material was all that was had in these um, spaces where Japanese Americans were you know, were held during the war, and and it was this resource that that they utilized to make ceramics to perpetuate and preserve this cultural art form that that kind of yeah, encapsulated yeah. and held their identity, and 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 then it was almost like forgotten about. There was a a little splurge of concrete as a medium post World War II Central Valley of California, okay. Southern California, and then it was like production ceramics coming out of Japan, out of Korea, out of China, and concrete was left by the wayside. And I think that's, for me, 
the dialogue around concrete in art is this rediscovery of a medium, its flexibility, and this constant contrast of its capacity to be raw and rugged and almost primally elemental versus the duality of being able to take it to almost a glass finish, utmost perfection, and having a lot of control over the shape that you create with it. And that's really where your work crossed that threshold into this beautiful sculptural quality, uh, both in terms of color, in terms of texture and feel, and definitively in terms of the shapes that you're creating. And when you sent us those original concepts, it was just like, wow, this is incredible. Hang on one sec. What's up, dude? Sorry, my six-year-old just came in. He is ready to rock and roll. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Hey, what's up, Taff? <laughs> he says hello. He's in my ears. You can't hear him. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I've got a four and six year old boys, so Oh, cool. All it. right. <laughs> we're in we're in that. We're in we're in the same vicinity of uh the per, the, the parental experience then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I so I think What's interesting, and, and correct me if I'm if I'm hearing you wrong, but really the shape and limitation of wood is what led to the design styles and and desire to work with concrete. That that's what led to my original, I think one or two designs. Um, I'm starting to do some more curves, um, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to keep them very, very clean, um, and. Um, but definitely the I think the the wood approach and and, and what I was making with that because I I was talking to Ted I, at the Huntington I've been volunteering there for the last year and I was talking to him about maybe making a wood pot for one of his and he pointed to a tree um he said you know this might be a candidate this is the size we'd need um and you know see what you can do and we'll 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 check it out this coming you know when we start repotting and stuff. And I was like, great, that's awesome. I took some measurements. I started like building some stuff. So I, I basically, I was really busy with some work stuff and I didn't have the time to make this pot out of wood. And it was just taking forever in the workshop. Um, and, and, and I started thinking about what other materials at that point as well. And that's partially also what led to this. So that, that, des- that initial design, um, it, it, it's almost like, like two hands holding the 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 tree um out like that and um i really wanted to to do that design but so so i guess i i made my first master um with in that same design that same that same look that i was going to use for wood Mm -hmm. and that that's what led me then into making the master that i or that i did the the silicone mold and and did the concrete uh from and and it sort of went from there Got you now, but, but also, but also, I yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. You keep going. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I also like. I've been to art school. Um, I, I've, I've always appreciated all levels of art, architecture, um, and, and I think, like, I've probably, I think, I've had these designs sort of stewing in my head for a while. Um, some of these, like, for me as a photographer, it's all about composition and balance, and like getting shapes in the right proportions in the frame and, and laying things out. And so like these, these designs came pretty naturally as, as a, a, almost like as a composition in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, 
in in order to be able to make a mold, you you have to be able to. And you, what did you call it? Not not a prototype, but you, what did you call your original? It's like it's it's a master. A master. Okay. And are you making the master out of concrete as well? No, no, no. Um, I'm actually making. I'm actually starting off, and I'm 3D printing sort of a base shape makes sense okay and then i take that and i start working the plastic with sandpaper and files and and i take it from there and it takes me like about a, a week or two after that until i arrive at my my, my final shape uh-huh uh-huh and then that's and, and, and the point of the master for me like the master is the pure expression of the design and I don't want to have any character in that. I don't want to have any defects or things that would carry into the final um, design aside from the shape. And so from there, I pour the silicone mold and that mold carries that shape. The concrete is what brings the life into it. And the concrete is where you'll get subtle defects or variations um, that makes each each piece unique and also how I finish them because I can come back in and do a second coat of concrete on top of the original casting to give it some extra texture or other looks. I, I have a couple of, of new design uh, uh, finishes that I'm working on. And then on top of that, I've found a, um, a type of, of pigments that I can apply that within an hour of applying it, you can still sort of rub it off after like a day, you can sort of sand it off a little bit, but after a while it becomes, it essentially hardens into the concrete, mm. becomes part of the concrete on the outer shell. And so um, it's been really um, fun expressing myself creatively with, with these pigments and trying all these contrasting colors. Like I, I remember the first time when I, I went and I, I had my first pot down. I had all my pigments lined up and I was, I, I started applying them and doing all these creative things. All, like I had that warm uh, creative, like welling inside me, like, Oh my God, this is, this is great. Like I can, I can just get all this like color expression and play with this and this j just like pour it all into these pots. And it's been very like, liberating every time i go and i do the color on these mm -hmm. um and it's it's actually interesting um my day job is uh computer visual effects for movies and one of the movies that i worked on in the last couple of years was uh spider-man into the spider-verse and uh later in the movie there's the big uh, uh collider sequence where everything's spinning around all the colors and it's crazy crazy um I worked on seven shots in that sequence and they would give us these very plain, like gray shaded buildings and all the other elements were all very just like plainly rendered with no like extra splash or colors or all the dots that were flying. Like that was all given us to us as raw elements. And it was up to us to create the colors and create the color palette. And they gave us like a rough, um, uh, like a, a color reference that uh, they had an artist do for the whole movie of like, here are some color ideas that they're thinking for this shot, but take this as a starting point and run with it. And I did. And it was, it was one of the most amazing movies I've ever worked on of just being able to like 
make it so colorful, but like a beautiful palette. And, and, and it really just blew me away working on that. And I only came on at the end of the last two months uh, to help with the final push. So I was a little bummed that I missed the, um, uh, the cutoff for, for getting my name in those credits by about a week or two. Mm. But, um, like, like of all the movies I've worked on that one, it's like, I want my kids to be able to show their friends in a decade, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but whatever I worked on it, it was fun. That's um, incredible. I, we just watched it for like, like 49th time last night. So <laughs> I know exactly what okay. you're talking about. Uh, and the color palette yeah. and all that, that's very interesting. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll, I'll send you, uh, a clip of the shots that I did. So oh, I did I seven shots in there. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, but I got that same sort of warm and tingly feeling doing that as I got when I started like coloring all these pots. Mm. And um, I don't know. I, I I don't get that too often, uh, even though I I'm I'm feel like I'm creative quite frequently in my work, in my day to day life, photography, whatever. Um, but like those moments are pretty rare, and that was pretty fun. Interesting. Interesting. So. I, I, so, so you, um, went to art school and, and, um, uh, you know, I'm assuming you studied photography in art school. Um, you know, well, okay. So, so I'll back you up a little bit further. I'll back you up a little bit further. Um, I coming out of high school, I was going to go into engineering and, um, I've always sort of had a very technical engineering mind. And I got a camera as, right, as my graduation present from high school. And it just like whoosh, took me off a whole different way. Um, my grades sucked. I went to community college. I, I did a bunch of photography there. Um, I haven't taken a photography class since that. But I went to art school because it was like a digital media program. So... Um, I went, I, I, I was going to go into like typography and graphic design, but I found this uh, working in film, like it, it's called compositing. It's like Photoshop, but for moving images. And my, my photography side really like connected with that and working on like live action footage. So I went and I focused on that. And that's what I've been doing ever since I, I started in the movie industry. Mm. So it's like, you're it's like, it's like when they film somebody against a green screen, I'm the guy who takes the green screen out and puts the background in. I put in the exploding element that comes in off the camera left. I put in CG cam, you know, character that's on camera right. Um, like you're creating a composite image of all these disparate elements and blending them together in a way that looks photographically real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So that, that's that's what I yeah that's what I do as a day job. And so this um, is where composition is so paramount for your career. Yeah, I mean, composition with being able to tell a story with how you assemble all this, you put the frame together um, and like leading the eye through a shot where you want the, the you know, the director like wants the, the eye to go to this element, sort of craft the lighting in a way that that makes your eye look at this, tell the story through the image. Mm. Um, but I've also been a photographer my whole life and I've done a lot of professional stuff over the years, um, like on the in the primaries here recently, I was uh, a photographer on a presidential campaign for a little bit. And, um, you know, I've done like professional car racing photography, um, all, all sorts of stuff. I do a lot of um, photography where I go into the back country 
and I, I film time lapse of the stars going over the landscapes and uh, all that stuff. So hmm. it, it it's it's you know anything I can photograph, I, I enjoy. It's it's that's another compared to visual effects where I'll have three or four or five people above me telling me how to create this image. Although I'm doing it, it's still it's a collaborative process. The photography is just me. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's where I can just go out and, and be my myself and do my own my own thing. Now does doing and, the photography give you the same kind of warm fuzzy vibe as doing the color work that you're finding that creative outlet in? Or or is photography more of like a uh become has become so natural that it's almost more like breathing like an integral part of you how does how like how does that creativity work out for you i photography has always brought me a, a definitely a big level of that um it's not um it it doesn't hit as often as like those couple of moments i mentioned because it's sort of yeah it is sort of always there but definitely like when i was on the campaign trail and you like you're seeing these shots come together you definitely feel it i mean um it's or, or or if I'm out, you know, photographing car racing and I, I, I get a shot lined up like and I'm nailing it, like I'm I'm doing like these cars are coming at over hundred miles an hour, but I'm I'm panning with them at like a fortieth of a second with the, those big like five hundred millimeter telephoto lenses and I'm nailing like moving with the car, like like definitely those are those are awesome. Yeah. Um so I guess I live for those kind of moments and, uh, you know, well, I, what I'm trying to pin down is what is it about? <laughs> what is it about color and the color process? Because, you know, handling your work, um, the thing that struck me beyond the shape because the shapes are innovative the shapes are are expansions on and and renditions on things that we haven't necessarily seen in bonsai and and more reference modern art and architectural shapes and forms which when i saw your work is right up my alley i just think like this is this is a really beautiful and the use of concrete deviating from the use of of the ceramic model uh, also really struck me as a modern material that's been rediscovered uh, and the finish uh, sort of being counterculture to what typically would house, uh, you know, a bonsai, all of these things, challenge, challenging the dogma and accepted approach. And, and I appreciated that. But the color gave your work a depth uh, and, and, and a nuance that I felt was really, really interesting. So then when you started saying, hey, working on the Spider-Verse and creating this palette, and I just got that fuzzy feeling and working with this expansive opportunity of color in, in concrete and the way that it's finished gave you that. I'm just like, what, what is it about color that's given you that, that, that mojo? I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's just like, I have a, a good sense of, of, it's not like what colors go together, but like, where you can find complementary, naturally finely like like these different colors that that just work to bring your eye in different places. Like I, I've been doing a lot of stuff where I do these subtle grads from bottom to top, and um, it, it, I don't know. I, I feel like some of those give it a lot of a lot of grounding and, and a little lighter on top, um, sort of like almost like builds up a landscape. Um, you know, I, I also, I, I grew up here in Southern California. I've been backpacking in the Sierra, in the Eastern Sierra, Nevada, like ever since I was a teenager. My, and um, 
like we would do like 50 mile backpacking trips with my brother and my dad um for like a week or two out there and so like i grew up in that landscape in that that natural like set, setting and, and you get these gradients that happen across nature mm-hmm. and and a lot of times you know when you see somebody who's painting um they may be painting green grass but they're using the purple for the shadows to make the green pop more and you know you can find that in nature and a lot of people will look at like a painting and say that that color wasn't there but no but if you really look in nature and just sit back like you'll see it you'll see it and, and it really brings brings the eye to seeing the colors you want them to look at better by showing the colors that they're not mm-hmm. you're blowing my mind right now i mean i think <laughs> I think uh, I've always, I've always, and this is the same conversation that I've that I've had, you know, trying to understand more about architecture because I do find architecture to be incredibly inspiring, and and I and I feel like the shapes and the conceptual components of architecture are are so incredibly informative to other art forms and are and are trying to reconcile this built versus natural environment, which is such a theme in life right now, but. Another one of those mysteries to me has been the artistic interpretation of a shadow on a green blade of grass being portrayed as purple. And listening to how you're using color and light to guide people's eyes and understanding color theory at, at a level that I doubt, as I'm looking at a, a, a painting or an art, artistic rendition and seeing that purple creating the shadow, I'm not recognizing that in, that intentionally is drawing my attention more towards the green. And these are the kind of, I feel like these are the kind of concepts that as bonsai is growing and expanding and individuals such as yourself are applying this greater depth of knowledge of the medium and of the different components of the foundation of art, you know, whether it is color theory or whether it is contour or shape or texture or shadow or positive, negative mass, all all of these things, um, we're opening up new doors to be able to explore new aesthetics. And it's further breaking outside of the confinement of the accepted approach, which is, which is radical because it's a, it's a discovery of a voice. It's an expansion of our awareness of other art mediums, designs, approaches, and theories. And it's just like, well, once you start tapping into that, there's a whole new world out there. There's a whole new world out there and it's really exciting. And that's really what pulled me into your work is like, okay, this is new. This is new. And this is going to take us somewhere new. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing seeing how, um, American bonsai is evolving in such a different way from Japanese traditional, even current modern bonsai in Japan. Yeah. And, and, and how, I mean, you would never, I mean, would you ever see non-traditional pots, uh, uh, vessels, whatever you want to call, um, at any of the Japanese exhibitions? I, I, th- I think you might. I mean, I mean, Jonathan Cross, like. Right, exactly. Uh, I think right. you might periodically see an outlier that somebody might look at and scoff. You might see yeah. some sort of religious or 
or contextual connotation represented by a bronze, uh, you know, Buddhist uh, right. offering or or vessel or incense, something that's used retrofitted from another purpose. But I don't think I don't think that you readily see people asking the question of why or what happens when or what does this do to the context and i think as 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 i've pursued bonsai in north america free of the institution uh, institutionalized mentality around japanese bonsai it's been really liberating to simply ask a simple question as to why would we simply use ceramics yeah. or what happens when you put a color in a container for a conifer and all of the things that sort of historically are thought to be faux pas or taboos and it's natural it's natural when you're trying to get a foundation underneath you and get your feet and and your stability established to be referencing a way that an art form has been pursued successfully and it's hard to argue with the japanese model but once the technique and the ability to do that has been demystified and in even mm -hmm. in the case of an apprenticeship in japan it's become a natural course and capacity uh as an apprentice in japan a repetitious production of three to four thousand trees over the course of the six years that i was an apprentice left me feeling like well maybe i would like to do something else besides this you know like this isn't going to sustain me for the right. next 40 years of my right. career yeah and that's really where the curiosity plus you're sitting outside of a culture that's based on that tradition and valuing the the conformity as much as you might say japanese culture does and all of a sudden it's like all the components are in place to 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 start to explore and i and i feel like i feel like everybody is experiencing that in north america you know i feel like the ceramicists are experiencing that artists such as yourself are experiencing that the the you know bonsai practitioners are experiencing that and asking what else is there and i think there's like a danger in that to move too fast and and not ever have any sort of mastery of craft or explore you know how much quality you can pull out of a potential aesthetic opportunity and also and also maybe some maybe some ideas need to keep moving in order for them to excel in advance and i think that's where we are is like feeling out this process and like what does it mean to keep going what does it mean to hover here for a little while do we lose something is the momentum gone is the is this what it takes to develop an identity or understand this component to a degree where we can then expand it's such a um liquid liquid and fluid process at this point in time and and, and that is very uh satisfactory to me at least and 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 the more people that get in involved in this process of fluid evolution i think the more beautiful the waves and the ripple effect becomes well so so let me throw this at you because i've been at the huntington a lot over the last year and i've seen the pinging stuff sort of evolve come in and now it's on display and what i asked you uh a while ago in a live Q&A, like, what could you tell me about the, the, the characteristics or the distinctions between penjing and bonsai? And, you know, there was a few things, but th 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 there, weren't, there weren't that many major distinctions or characteristics. So would you say that there's more difference, more of a difference between American bonsai 
and Japanese bonsai than Japanese bonsai and Penjing. And with that said, do you think American bonsai should have a new name that doesn't reference bonsai from mm -hmm. Japan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the, I think, I think this is a, I think this is a legitimate question, especially if we want to say that it's something different, but I don't think we've quite gotten to the point where it is something different. And, the, and to answer your question, no, right. I, I don't think there's a greater difference between bonsai being pursued in North America or whatever it is we're doing and bonsai in Japan versus pinging and bonsai. Cause I think, I think we're actually starting to, in the discovery of more extreme forms of wild material and expressions of the native environment, I think we're actually circling back to some of the concepts of pinging. And you're starting to see mm -hmm. pinging be a more attractive, identifiable, understandable, or influential component of expressions and relationships visually with the natural environment. And I'm actually, I'm seeing that and I'm sensing that and I'm feeling that in the work that I'm doing. Although I don't look at pinging for, for information or influence necessarily because it's hard to find the same kind of collected references or organized understanding of the intention or thought process or schools of pinging. You know, Japanese bonsai had so many foreigners go and apprentice and understand and learn and not necessarily yeah. saying that as a foreigner you can completely understand I, I i don't think that you can i think you can gather nuances right but to not be uh native to that culture means there is a cap in my mind anyways to what you can totally comprehend but i don't know anybody who has studied and that's not to say that they don't exist i just haven't met them or don't know of them but i don't know anybody that has really embraced pinging and had the capacity to be a translator or a communicator of the the nuances that exist in pinging and the styles in pinging and the schools in pinging and the thought process behind yeah. it and the intent you know and that's where it starts to get really murky because there's a depth to pinging that is undiscussed, and there is a history with pinging that, you know, has ebbed and flowed with what seems to be, from my limited knowledge, the change in priorities uh, of, of, of Chinese culture over the course of time. But I think you see a lot of nuances of traditional Chinese culture in the forms of pinging and the colors of the pots and the shapes of the ceramics and the ostentatious nature of the trees. And there's a strong possibility that that potentially correlates more with the defiant dynamic of the quest for freedom and a lack of control that I think a lot of Americans are trying to express in the work that they do, as opposed to a more conformity-based uh, acceptance of the whole, as you would see in a culture based on the tradition and behavior of the Japanese, right? And 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 both are beautiful. I'm not knocking anything, but um, yeah. But pinging, pinging pulls in radical concepts, and those concepts are are definitely inspirational to me right now, for sure. Right, yeah. I mean, back in 2005, um, actually, my first job out of art school was um, I, I was hired to go to China um, and live there for four months uh, working on a, on a project, on a film. And while I was there, I got to go to, to Suzhou um, outside of Shanghai 
and I guess Suzhou is where a lot of the original Asian, well, Chinese gardens started. And some of the original, like, like it's, it was told to me like it was the, the epicenter of the entire Asian gardening ethic, which then expanded from there out to all of China. And I'm sure there's other variations of this. This is just what was told to me. And then was taken to Japan and refined from there into what became the Japanese gardening ethic. And it's interesting how like exploring those gardens and seeing how it's not that it's more raw. It's just it's it's more expressive and not as as constrained. Mm-hmm. And 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 how much um, I I have not been to Japan, but I've seen some decent examples here, in you know uh, in the U.S. Uh, and online and stuff of of gardens and and obviously gardens also then relates to the styles of the of the trees mm-hmm. uh, of penji and bonsai, but. Um, it was interesting seeing that 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 difference and seeing sort of where it started and then how it grew out from there yeah 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 and 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 so consequently when we start talking about whatever we're doing in north america you know ultimately is it very original i, I don't know you know the right. la- the landscape here is different and we don't have the red pines of uh, of of you know the yellow river we don't have the same landscapes as as the japanese alps or the same species but there are commonalities that exist in the elemental influences on plant material and there are similarities between pines across these regions of the world and and it, and then it comes down to interpretation and technique and i think what I've kind of recognized over the course of time is, is it, is it the, as, as basic and fundamental as this is, is it the elements that you are utilizing that make it something versus another? And that's where bonsai, tree and tray, feels like right. a, limiting, a limiting component, which... I've spoken with Ron Lang as a ceramicist about this on the podcast and and where the ceramic vessel might be the impairment, especially in the adherence to the traditional shapes, which were derived from China and then modified in Japan or at least continued in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, well, when you start to move out of that, what happens to that? You know, what context are you creating? And then where we see bonsai and pinjing displayed typically are either in a garden environment that has context to that culture or in a physical space that is prepared in a very similar way consistently as the definition of this is how you present this art form to the public. So then you say, okay, well, if you change that vessel and you change the context in which it's presented, is the interpretation of that piece now capable of being taken in with a different meaning and a different uh, interpretation that makes it something else? And I guess... I do have to believe that it that it does have that capacity and it, and that it is uh, inherently something different, but I don't think that we've worked out what that is. Right. I mean, uh, I sort of see like American bonsai almost expanding more out from. It's such an open land. It's a, it's really about all about the landscape, the forest plantings for me. Like I've been getting more and more into those. And it's funny because here I am making vessels for 
likely singular plantings, um, which I love and we're, we're always going to have. Like I've been finding myself desiring to do more and more natural rock forest kind of plantings to represent the landscape that is here in the U.S. Yeah. And 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 honestly, for like like the for me, I sort of got into this as a way to bring nature and varying species of types and looks of nature home to my backyard as a way to miniaturize and, and make it personal for me. That's part of why I really got into this and like it and what I get out of it. And so, um, you know, I've been doing like, I make I made uh, a, an oak forest planting. Uh, I've got like, I, I bought this, um, uh, one of the hardest woods in the world or the hardest is lignum vitae. And I bought a slab of lignum vitae and um, planted like this nice flowing um, uh, oak landscape on it. And like, to me, that feels like America. That feels like stuff I know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like, maybe we, we start opening the vessels up more mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to do, to allow for more of that. And, and so, so my, my most recent round, the one I sent you a picture of, you know, it was sort of half pot on one side, but half open on the other to allow for more of a flowing, less constrained feeling to it. Wow. That's really fascinating. I think you're, I think you're touching on something really uh, interesting there in terms of this desire to control or constrict or contain versus, and, and this, 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 this would insinuate a lack of space, right? Versus this sort of lack of, lack of control or lack of containment this open expansion and i think space has always been space has always been a a a constant thought for me because there's never been an exhibition that's been done where space is not the limiting factor uh this this is this is at the epicenter of my desire to explore exhibition styles is to have space be almost unlimited and that that becomes a very very creative concept to play with but for the for the component that houses the tree. And I think this is why I've, I've gone to work with a lot of natural wood because wood typically isn't containing things. It's, it's you're typically, you're having to adjust and plant on top of it or metal where you have such a thin surface that you really can get to uh, a maximization of the visual weight of the plant material as opposed to its equal balance. And I think also not necessarily feeling like you have to quest for balance in the in the creation of a subject because in the natural environment a tree doesn't a tree isn't attempting to have balance it's just doing the best it can to stay alive with the elements yeah. thrown at it right yeah. i mean bristle cones right. say yeah. ancient trees they're showing you they're like look balance we forgot about that 2000 years ago we're just trying to stay here you know and and yeah. and there's yeah. there's a magic in that that i find um I find to be really interesting. And I I would say one last thing, like I think whether you're looking at Wabi Sabi, whether you're looking at Shinto as a religious belief system, whether you're looking at Buddhism or Taoism as a manner or methodology or teaching that is being reflected, those are inherently pinging and bonsai concepts. And I don't necessarily know that I have seen, and I think there's probably grounds for this to be represented via different religious contextual explorations or visual representations. 
Um, but I don't think that I've ever seen a composition that's based on Christianity or or the Mormon faith or uh, you know the witness faith, uh, which I'm not saying there needs to be. I'm just saying it's we have largely accepted these compositions that come from China and Japan and the and the birthplaces and origins of this art form of recreation of nature in miniature. But it's not really nature in miniature. It has another right, not there. It has another conceptual backbone to it, and there's an influence of culture. And then all of a sudden, you take it and you put it into a melting pot like North America that is truly a conglomeration, you know, whether or not we've maintained sort of the notion of freedom or whether we're drugged into thinking that's what we exist in, we still, there still is, I think, a desire to exist outside of a construct to a degree. And when you apply that to representation of nature in miniature, I do feel a certain amount of freedom to be able to interpret nature in a way that I don't necessarily know Penjing or Bonsai has had the opportunity to do. Right. I mean, like, like, where do you need to, how many of these conventions do you need to bring over to the U.S.? Like Kusumono required as part of a display mm-hmm. as like, as opposed to making that part of the, of the display or part of, or not even needing it. And, and how much of that is just part of us bringing the name bonsai over here mm-hmm. and how much is like, yeah, we, we need to make it our own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we want to call it something different, you know, and if, and if the goal is to well, use... I'm not saying a name, but yeah. Sure. But if the goal is to but... express something that is true and authentic to somebody living uh, their reality in North America, I think it's very challenging to try and stay true to the Chinese concepts of pinging or the Japanese concepts of bonsai as those terminologies are loaded with connotation. And so then you do right. start to say, well, God, what do you call it? And how do you go about that? And I think this is, and I, and I keep circling back to your work because, you know, I don't just see something cool and then I'm like, oh, I want to go play with that cool thing. I see something that I think is cool. And then I think, why do I think that is cool? And I think your work brought about, again, the re-exploration of a, a, a material that has, has some historical connotation, but also is taken for granted and rediscovered at a higher mm-hmm. level of aesthetic. Uh, I think the forms that you're making are very modern uh, and sophisticated forms. And this with the organic form, the contrast of those two, ultimately taps into architecture at its fundamental level. You know, And that is fascinating right. to me. And But where we're getting in terms of this conversation is really a discussion of greater concepts, which I never dreamed we would, not that I underestimated (laughs) our capacity to have this conversation, but (laughs) gosh, you're getting the wheels turning in terms of excitement around this notion of expansion and a lack of desire to, to control or to, uh, you know, confine. And that's, this is fascinating because it's, it's a real experience, especially growing up in the Western United States, West, West of the Rockies, the deserts. Right the landscapes of of California and the southern southern southwestern United States these are expansively open landscapes yeah yeah i mean honestly i'm just getting just continuing this convert like i've had inklings of this in my head and but having this conversation i'm already like designs oh what about oh this is interesting like i'm already having 
little design flashes in my head. Like, let me go sketch real quick. Here. Right, right. <laughs> I, I And I would welcome you to do that because I think the other thing that you're tapping into with color uh, theory is there are notions of, of you know, um, uh, analogous versus uh, complementary colors and color theory, but that's like the very yeah. base. That's not a, that's not a definitive color theory discussion. It's just the open opening it's a starting point. Starting point. That's a launching. Yeah. But the purple shadow on the green blade of grass and the capacity for the vessel to potentially push the viewer's notion of design in different directions. This is also really, really fascinating to me. And light and dark has been a notion. Patina on a ceramic would be a traditional interpretation of light and dark and its impact and value in the ceramic right. system. But how can you use that intentionally in a way that is directing and guiding people's experience? This is, this is, this is incredible. This is, this is monumental in my mind. Yeah, I think I need to head. So I, I'm actually heading out to Mojave National Preserve um, in a week or two here. Um, and I think I'm going to start sketching again. Uh, the, the last uh, pot that I sent that has that, that round uh, curve, like I actually was, was up in the Angeles National, Los Padres National Forest, um, Fraser Mountain, which is just north of LA by Mount Pinos. And I was sitting there camping with my kids and I was looking at the curve of the hill and that's sort of where I got that that curve from and my kids were off playing and I was sketching and I was like oh that's a I like I like that curve like and mm. I see these trees on here and I think I'm going to do some more sketching next time I'm, I'm back out at the desert again now that it's cooled off yeah yeah what an, out there what an interesting it's it, it's so radical to to see how when you take like the person out of the human, like you're Aaron, I know you as Aaron, and you take Aaron out of it and you become a fil filtration mechanism. So you're taking this in and what Aaron is gonna see in that landscape and what I would see and what maybe Jonathan Cross would see, we're, right. all, we're all gonna take something totally different. And you took a curve that informed the shape of the vessel that you made with a material that is largely underutilized uh, and potentially even uh, not utilized. Uh, th this is where there is a limitless possibility for creativity within the medium of tiny trees and how they're handled and what they represent contextually. I think Anytime somebody tries to put a cap on what's possible, it's just like, well, you certainly aren't thinking far enough <laughs> ahead, right? Yeah, yeah. But like when he mentioned the the, the road cuts in his podcast with you, right. like noticing the layers and yeah, I mean, like my dad's a geologist and like I've grown up looking at that stuff. And then you get the road cuts where there's next to a a um, a fault, and you see that th those lines just start to get gnarled. By all the pressures, um, it, th there's a road cut heading up 15 up into the high desert, um, and um, it's it just gets crazy through there when, when it crosses the San Andreas Fault, and and you see those layers just start to get gnarled. And yeah, I mean, you know, you you can see those layers, and then you can see places where it gets crazy. It's mm -hmm. so like you get out to to Mojave and and you know, there's these junipers out there and they're obviously on the, the, the side of these hills that are all rocky and crazy. 
and and yeah, some of those rock. I, I think I'm gonna go looking at some of the different shapes of these these boulders and these rocks out there. Mm-hmm. there there's some beautiful stuff. Um, you know, there was there was recently a fire out in Mojave National Preserve. I think one of the largest Joshua tree um, uh, groves in the world was torched. Oh, um, so it. I that's partially why I'm going out there is because I've camped a bunch in one of the areas that is under the, is covered by the burn map so i want to go and sort of scope it out and 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 see how it's changed and how much i mean it's it's this beautifully lush desert out there it's one of the most lush deserts in the world i feel hmm. um and i have a couple of, of back areas i like to four by four out to and and so i i'm, I'm curious to see how it's how it's fared but then I'm going to go to the areas that I know hasn't haven't burned as well, and we'll probably camp out there. And um, yeah, we'll see how it all looks. But now, when you when you go to a place like that, you take a, I'm assuming you would take your camera. Uh, you take a sketch pad, maybe. Like what when you go? You said you grew up backpacking in the Eastern Sierras, and and uh, what is your intention when you go? out into these places because clearly they inspire you, but how, how does that, what does that look like for you? You know, it's funny. It's, it's evolved over the years, actually. Um, I really don't sketch much organic stuff. I don't sketch landscapes. I don't, I've really only started, like I took drawing in art school. You have to do a certain level of drawing, all the figure drawing and all that, but sketching and drawing has never really connected with me. I've only started sketching these pots recently because it's the quickest way to, for me to brain dump onto paper. And I can get these geometric shapes out in a way that, that makes sense to me. And then I can work that from there. I can refine the lines and everything. But um, I've mostly over the years, well, I've always gone out to enjoy the landscape. But then I've once I got into photography, I've I became like, a landscape photographer. I love shooting that. I love finding landscapes. And but then I got got into time lapse cinematography, and I would go out, and I essentially I, I would have trips out to Death Valley, where I would I wouldn't take a still photo. It would only be the time lapse. I would set up like four or five or six time lapse cameras, run them all night, changing shots after four or six hours of them running, or some all that run for like fourteen hours, and they'll go from like sun. Yeah, afternoon through sunset, all the way through the night with the stars, all the way through sunrise in the morning, and do these giant long shots. And I was so taken by that that I never shot any still photos. Mm. And then, um, it, and I was like, you know, why don't I get back into taking still photos? Well, you know, what? when I do this, I can then sit back and enjoy the landscape more. And, and I've sort of been, and and now that I have kids and I'm going out with the kids, like. I don't have time for all that stuff and I'll bring a camera of course and I'll shoot some stuff when I see it but I don't go out now as often with the intention of I'm going to go out and I'm going to shoot the most amazing epic landscape photos that I can Mm -hmm. even though I'm inherently a photographer because now it's like yes and you can say like the kids have have tamed me or whatever like no like I'm out there with my kids to have my kids experience this and I'm with them and I'll see stuff and I'll shoot it, but I'm out there just enjoying it with them. And it's, mm-hmm. it's been a blast. Interesting. Like it's sort of, it's just evolved all this. Cause like when I was a teenager, 
before I got into photography, my brother was always the one with the camera. Like we went to Hawaii. My brother took all the pictures on that trip. I never took any pictures when I was, when I was younger. Hmm. So I, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how that's evolved over the years. Yeah. But it's always been to enjoy it. Yeah. Do you, do you, do you, uh, I mean, your kids are obviously very young, four and six. Have they expressed, I know, when we go out as a team and, and film in a landscape or something for Mirai, because documenting the landscape, I mean, it's changing so fast now. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm concerned the landscapes that we value are going to be gone soon. So it's 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 almost yeah. like, for me, it's like uh, trying to hold on a little bit, which is a little weird, but that's a story for another time. But I always get tapped <laughs> a, a disposable camera. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, it's so amazing to see the interpretation of, of his perspective of where we're at and, and right. what, uh, do you, do your boys show or your kids show any interest in, in, in that at all? I think, um, my older one has a little bit, I've, I, I have, a, I bought a GoPro with the intention of having them try some stuff. Um, but I think they just enjoy being out there. I don't yeah. want to give them something to get in the way of that. Nice. And, nice. and, you know, like if they want to go out there and play with sticks and just run around and have fun, like, great, you know? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I do want to get, get them into that, but I think it's going to be another couple of years at least until I, I give them a, a frame to view things from within. Like, you know, I want them to see everything now. Ah. Uh. And, and I feel like, like if you give somebody a camera that's still exploring something, if you give somebody like a confine, like a, a camera is a constraint. It's it's half about what you see, but it's also half about what you frame out, what you don't see. And 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 the frame of a camera is very. It's a very unique thing that you have to have a special relationship with to um, to make great photography. I feel. Like for me, the edge, the edges of a frame of a composition are just as important or more than what's in the middle. Like you can do, a, a, you know, rule of thirds or whatever. You can position the subject in a few different places in the frame. But if you have some random objects, stray objects coming in from the edge of frame or something isn't quite clean with the composition, that throws me right out of the image. Mm. And so like for me, framing things is a very sacred thing and um you know and and with the kids like that's a whole other lesson in and of itself that i i'm happy with them just having a love and appreciation for the outdoors so do you i mean this is interesting though because in many ways what you're what you're creating is a frame to hold a tree more or less with these vessels and, and suddenly, yeah, boy, it gives, it gives so much more context to the decisions that you're making intentionally in this work than to know that that is something that you value to that degree, which just, yeah. ma- which just made me fall in love with your pieces all over again. That is really, <laughs> that is really something to think about. You know, I it, always, it's all about clean. Go ahead. Yeah. Good. No, I just kidding. It's all about clean concise decisive yeah like that's something i really took away from art school is those are key things if you're ambiguous or if you're not really clear about what you're doing who cares whatever it's 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 crap Mm, interesting you know yeah you need to be decisive 
So, so is there is there a photographer or, or or a group of photographers whose work you particularly found to embody that that kind of style or approach, or whose work you were just like, boom, they nailed it? Not honestly, I I tend to maybe purposely I tend to try to keep myself in a bubble. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I love just enjoying photography how I come across it and, and, you know, if I visit a museum, I enjoy it. I might take inspiration. I don't, I'm not a follower of photography. Photography is more of, it's more like half of it's the process for me. A part of it's the finished image and a part of it is the enjoyment of the technical gear, honestly. Like, like, like I, most of my art forms of artwork have something that's, technical or something that i can wrap the other engineering half of my brain around and like i enjoy the process oftentimes more than the result yeah like i make movies for a living i might see aside from this year obviously i might go to one or two or three movies a year in theaters max i'm not a movie buff i don't i didn't get into it to make movies i got got into it to make movies and, and it's really about that process. If it was me doing the same thing, but it was for some other industry or some other thing, I could enjoy it just as much. Wow. It is fun. It is fun working on big movies and like knowing the ending to Infinity War, Avengers Infinity War, because you're working on the ending and then you're reading up online what everybody's, you know, anticipating it's going to be, but you're working on that it's like haha like okay that's fun i enjoy that aspect of working in this industry but i'm not working in the industry for movies right i'm not doing photography to become part of a larger photography world yeah like i i don't post myself out there that much yeah yeah Boy, it feels to me, and this is a tangent, but I'm just going to say it. It feels to me like it's a huge liability to trust everybody that's working working on a project like an Avengers movie or a Spider-Man movie to not go out. I mean, like some people just inherently are not good at keeping secrets and you have them. They're just like sitting there shaking with excitement to tell somebody (laughs) this thing they're not supposed to tell. You would have to have one of those one personality type like that working on a movie that could totally blow the whole thing up. I mean, I guess maybe in the end it doesn't matter, but that's hilarious where you're reading it and you're enjoying this. I would imagine some people working on it are just trying to contain the desire to give away the ending. Oh no, it's, it's fun. I mean, um, you know, honestly, those, those type of people that can't really keep their heads down or can't keep it quiet. Like they get weeded out real quick Uh, and you, yeah, people like to blab about stuff. They they won't get brought onto projects or whatever. They'll just get blacklisted. But um, I mean, we also sign big NDAs, and you know, you don't want to get in, involved in that stuff. So I would um, imagine, but that it's would also be just fun fun being on the inside of stuff like that. Yeah, and and you know, sort of seeing it from that different perspective of how this stuff is is going to end, or you know, I mean, even in like uh, in in Avengers: Infinity War. We were doing separate versions of shots that would go into the trailer with his the stones in his rings being different than what they are actually in the movie at that same point. Mm. So everybody who's trying to read into it is going to see differences, you know, a, a different like, oh, well, if he's already at 
on this planet, but he doesn't have those extra stones. Well, that must mean this and this. It's like, no, we did that for the trailer to not give anything away. Wow. Wow. So, so Marvel is even messing with you. And people have gone back and they'll compare after the movie comes out, they'll compare the shots in the trailer to the movie. And they're like, oh, you know, it's like, no, they just don't want to give anything away. But, but it was also interesting, like part of the reason why we've always been like forced to work on site under high security, this and that has been because they don't want the leaks and you have to get a facility certified by Marvel to be high security, blah, 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 where you can't get any footage out. And then the pandemic happened and everybody was locked in at home and they're like, uh, we have to get these movies done. Uh, maybe we should let people work at home. Maybe it's okay now. So it's weird. Like this whole paradigm shift has happened where all these artists are working from home now for the last however many months. And we've been like doing all these movies. Well, how many leaks have actually come from that? None. No visual effects artists have actually gone and leaked out and made spoil the movie. Well, gee, maybe we can be trusted, you know? Yeah. 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 Maybe you can give people a, a little longer leash and and still yeah. maintain the kind of uh the the kind the kind of magic of surprise that uh that's necessary like we're, we're professionals yeah right interesting yeah. wow that's fascinating so that, yeah th th there's your tangent <laughs> now yeah well i mean i'm glad we went on it because it, it it is really uh i mean hollywood and and these big budget productions would you say that they influence your your creativity as well working in that capacity on these kinds of films or would you it sounds to me like you filter what you take in and what you allow to influence your process not being a follower of uh, of photographers and, and and not being a film buff you're you're almost protecting to a degree your creativity would you say working on these projects does influence you i mean i don't know if it influences me because aside unless i get something in and of itself that's that's specifically gratifying like in spider-verse because you know i guess over after the last 15 years of working on movies it's like oh cool i got an, on another big name movie cool okay or i'll like right now i'm working on a no-name you know thing for netflix i i will never watch this show I know nothing about it, but I've thankfully been employed on it for the entirety of the pandemic, which has been amazing. So I have consistent income, but like, I'm not going to see this. I'm not going to, you know, but I still get enjoyment and gratification out of the work. Yeah. And, you know, we can't, we can't always land big name movies back to back. And so there's, I'll work on a random commercial that does nothing for me. And, but there's a really cool shot in there that I had to engineer something, how to get that to work. And that I'll take gratification from. So it's, you know, like, like the awe, uh, like my first movie was Pan's Labyrinth. Okay, I was a little cool, you know, that, 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 that was cool. But working on it, we didn't know it was going to be this amazing epic, like uh, best movie in 20 years. But, you know, like people were saying, like it, when it came, like when we were working on it, it was just, oh, here's Guillermo del Toro. He's a really cool director making this small little movie. And um, it was all in Spanish. So we didn't know what, you know, we didn't have translations. It was beautifully shot. We didn't know much about it. And then we finished it. It didn't come out until like, what, like six, eight, ten months later. And and we were already on other stuff and whatever. And then the 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 critics are like, 
oh my god this is the best movie in 20 years this is guillermo del toro's you know masterpiece blah 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 and we're like huh oh i guess we should go see it you know <laughs> we should go check that out <laughs> yeah hey what a what an odd relationship with the work yeah that's tough that's yeah, I, that's tough but but i mean for you ryan you know you're working on these these ginormous amazing epic trees that most of us you know could never ever consider even coming close to owning and you're there just just going at it you're you're throwing you know throwing branches this way and that way you're like you know doing all your stuff and like i could never you know get my hand like i guess i i do volunteer at the huntington i do get my hands on nice trees like that mm -hmm. but only you know with ted looking over my shoulder going did he break something no, <laughs> right, no yeah, ted's right. not like that but yeah no no but dude. i think like, like like yeah so um but like you know you're getting your hands on those all this epic stuff yeah and um and for you, it's it's nothing. I'm not this nothing. You appreciate it. I appreciate it. I respect it. I think I respect it. You respect it. Yeah. And I respect it when I'm working on big stuff. But you know, at some point, it it just becomes part of what you do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like. I I I think where I where the mystery comes in for me, especially thinking about because you're talking about a scope and scale that you're working on the 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 people power it takes to bring something like that to life and the hours and the time. hundreds and hundreds oh, of people yeah unfathomable thousands and, sometimes and and this this uh, you know, troy troy and i take care of the garden troy and kaufman and i take care of the tree work uh we have a great core of students that that also contribute uh, significantly, and I've got a wonderful team that helps make Mariah tick. But ultimately, the 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 creative product is 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 very tactile, and it's one tree at a time, and it's um it's just digestible for me. It's such a smaller scale that to think about being a part of some creative endeavor of the scale and scope that you're used to working with seems incomprehensible to me. It's it's something I've never experienced, but I respect it. And, and I certainly but, enjoy it. But, but it's still, right. But it's still, you take, it's just tasks on a bigger scale or smaller scale. It's still the same task. You're still printing one juniper, you know, needle at a time, or you're still doing the same functions. Like I'm still taking a shot and I'm like, yes, it may be a render of Thanos and it may be, you know, amazing writer i'm still dialing the same stuff i'm still adjusting it in the same ways mm, interesting and, and 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 you know occasionally you'll get onto something that's like oh we really have to re-engineer this whole thing and figure out all this all this stuff but yeah and so maybe sometimes you'll end up with all right we have to wedge cut this ginormous thing and and do this you know like we don't do this too often but hey we got to treat we got to we got to do some big operations here yeah like we'll get that in the movie industry like um, I blew up Times Square on the Amazing Spider-Man Two, you know. Um, <laughs> like, hey, that that's pretty cool. That is cool. Um, but um, you know, you, you don't get those all the time. But when you do, it's like, hey, cool. You know, I blew up Times Square. So not many people get to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me and uh, a, a guy, a guy who actually lives up there, Nick Loy. Um, he was the lighter. I was the compositor. And we basically like, and then there was all these amazing effects artists and people like generating all the buildings falling down. And like, it was this giant shot of like enormous wide shot of Times Square and Electro goes like, 
you know, bursts his energy and just you get this all Times Square buildings collapsing and like that was an enormous shot. And we had like it, it was crazy, but it was, you know, you still all the individual things are still the same individual thing. Yeah. Yeah. What a radical way to break it down. Yeah. Makes sense. The, the, I don't know if you feel this because you're, you're metaphorically creating a, a similarity between bonsai and this really <laughs> demanding people power production of a Hollywood level film. But I do find the way that that trees and, and specifically these miniaturized trees can, can, uh, represent such grand ideas and grand scale operations and stuff is pretty it's pretty magical how how you can use bonsai to discuss the similarities of all of these larger themes in life it's it's been it's been the best doorway into creativity for me because it does help me make sense in the way that you're breaking it down for this thing that seems un uncomprehendable when you say it like that it's now understandable or at least a little more digestible and that that consistency of this small little microcosm illustrating this greater universal concept is 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 almost i think something that we lack in society in general this is where i think everybody having a bonsai tree would make a better world but We'll see how that right, goes. Right, right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. We'll see how that I'll goes. I'll let you work on that marketing campaign right? there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Subaru Kato and John Naka were with the World Bonsai Friendship Federation. They thought Bonsai could bring about world peace. That that's a tall <laughs> order. But but nevertheless, yeah, I don't yeah. think that the idea is inaccurate. I don't think the idea is inaccurate. Right. It's just a matter right. of convincing everybody else of this. Well, maybe if everybody had to take care of a small tree they would respect nature more without a doubt without a doubt you know your place yeah, your, right? your place in the ecosystem boom illustrated right yeah. there yeah right yeah it's it's wild well aaron i mean i feel go, go, go ahead i was just saying going back to the scale thing real quick that um you know when i first subscribed to to Mirai, initially i was like a little bit put off by he's only doing these crazy big trees like how would that ever equate to anything that I'm doing? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I finally, like after a month or two, like was able to wrap my head around the fact that all these tasks and all these things can relate because you have to look at the small things, not the big, not the big, you know, right. Not like I'm not doing this crazy, huge, you know, tree, but the individual tasks, the individual, individual approaches of pruning of this and that, you know, yeah, I may not have a super crazy refined, you know, uh, uh, tree with all this this, re this this ramification, but I can get there by following, you know, this and this. And and, right. and I eventually was able to, to wrap my head around that. And now I can watch watch the, the streams and like, okay, now I, I can equate this and that. But it took me a little bit, actually. So. Right, right. Yeah, my, I think that feedback has been, I think that feedback has been consistent and, and rightly so, you know, like what when you take all of this and you apply it to something that's more within reach or realistic for the majority of people, what, what does it equal? What does it create? And I had that same question when I was starting Bonsai too. And so I think right. the, 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 you know, the nursery stock series or just some material where there is a lot more accessibility to it, that those have been really, because 
ultimately, and I think it coincides with what you're saying, you do, you're doing a commercial, which you don't necessarily connect to, but you get to work out some little twist in that commercial for a shot. And that keeps you there, keeps you in it. Yeah. That's the same thing for me. I love working on this grandiose material and also uh, a very common pencil thick juniper whip still challenges me to find the most interesting piece of movement and pull that out of the material. And that's where I'm still in it or maximizing the use of a cutting or creating an air layer uh, on a seemingly uh, potentialist piece of material. And all of a sudden there's a tree. I, I, I feed off of that. And it seems like there's some synergy between your and I's mentality around that. But, but I feel so fortunate that you chose to invest your energy and efforts, at least some of them, into the work that you're doing. And I'm really, we've been waiting to have this conversation with you because I think it's important for people to have context before we present them with your work. But once this podcast launches, uh, your work will officially be available uh, on on our site. And and I know you're working on new stuff that we haven't even seen yet that we're Yeah, I've got a bunch of stuff in the pipeline. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So we look, yeah, no, it's been great connecting. Yeah. Yeah. We look forward to it. And, um, and if somebody wanted to see your photography of, of the woodwork that you do, you said you had an Instagram account. Well, how would they find yeah, you? Yeah. I mean, I, so, I mean, I, Aaron Kupferman, uh, spilling will be in the podcast, obviously. Yeah. Um, Aaron is my photography. Um, and, my you can find me on instagram at the same name but it's uh my username is is imager993 but if you just search for my name you can find it cool um and uh and then you'll be able to find me on the the mariah web store hey web store (laughs) your work is it's been shot it looks beautiful we have context now and uh and i think it's so important for people to know where your head is at when this work is created because I know for me, it's been hugely enlightening and, and allows me to see it in yet another perspective. I was already in now I'm, now I'm in so much deeper. So, um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you trusting us. It it is a, it is very, it's a, it's very flattering when an artist feels like, Hey, we feel like you can represent our work and we're, we're going to do our very best. And, And honestly, it's, it's mostly been over the last, you know, year that I've been a member really you know, getting to know you via streams and everything and, and trusting you based on how, how you've presented everything through Mirai. So, um, you know, it's, it's really become the primary resource, the only resource for me. I don't browse YouTube videos anymore for, 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 uh, bonsai material. It's all, it's all Mirai. So, um, we'll keep it up. I, I, I'm in. Yeah. Well, Let's thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for the support. Very, very cool. I look forward to it. Yeah. Uh, this will this will launch on Friday, and phew, away we go. Great. All right. Very cool. cool. Well, well, yeah. Um, great. Great talking to you. Definitely. Really nice to put a face to yeah. the name and to and to get some some information behind you. And um, I can't wait to see what you continue to create. I think this this conversation has given me some uh, some new directions to consider <laughs> as well. So. Uh, that was a likewise, unfor- likewise, yeah, unforeseen, fortuitous occasion. But um, have a good rest of your night, Aaron, and uh, and we'll look forward to more, you my too. friend. Great, sounds good. All Thanks, right, take Ryan. care. All right, bye. All right, bye bye.